Welcome to The Beat, a podcast series from the Cops Office at the Department of Justice, featuring interviews with experts from a varied field of disciplines. The Beat provides law enforcement with the latest developments and trending topics in community policing. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Beat. I'm your host, Jennifer Donnellan. Today, we have a very special guest, and I hope you enjoy today's podcast and walk away having learned new things with new perspectives. Today, we have joining us Chief Jacob Molitor. Chief Jacob Molitor joined the Meskwaki Nation Police Department of Tama, Iowa in 2012 and was promoted to Chief of Police in May of 2019. He is proud to be the only Chief of Police in the department's history who started out as a patrol officer and was promoted from within. Upon his promotion to Chief of Police, his top priorities were to implement department cultural trainings, provide biannual education on the use of force to council members and others within tribal operations, improve partnerships with surrounding agencies, and increase communication, transparency, and accountability for the public. In February of 2020, Chief Molitor's team became the first known police department to collect de-escalation statistics. The agency collects those statistics using their own defined metrics. Their process of documenting and recognizing de-escalated situations assists with community support, officer safety alerts, and praise of officers. We're going to talk about that in just a second. Chief Molitor's agency prides itself on being innovative, respectful, supportive, and well-trained. If he had to choose, we're going to ask him about this. The most important training sought by Chief Molitor would be interviewing, de-escalation, crisis intervention, and leadership-related training because they revolve around effective communication. He believes our most important assets are our people and that we need to invest in our futures. Chief, I want to thank you for joining us here on The Beat. Thank you for having me, Jennifer. You know, Chief, this is the first time we're speaking to a chief of a tribal nation. I'm honored to be the first one. It's really exciting for me personally because, again, as I mentioned at the beginning, it's really an opportunity for us to learn about something that I know very little about. And so I think our listeners are going to be engaged. So let's go to the beginning of your career, because it's something that we talk to everybody about on the beat. And that's how did you get started in law enforcement? And then I want to talk about the tribal nation. So I really looked up to my uncle, Jim Kahn. He was a Minnesota state trooper when I was in high school. He's the type of person that he doesn't say a whole lot. He looks like your typical police officer with a mustache and He's just the all-around great guy and respectable. I wanted to be like him. That's pretty much what it comes down to. And you were debating, right? Weren't you debating between three different jobs? Welder, I understand, was one of them. Yep, gym teacher and was the other one. And ultimately, I chose police officer. And you chose police officer and then rose through the ranks very quickly. You're now chief of police. And you've been chief of police for, what, two and a half years now, interim before that? Correct. So another thing that I failed to mention that we're going to talk about in just a little bit, Chief Molitor is also chair of the Small and Rural Law Enforcement Executives Association. So we're going to talk about that in just a second. I want to get into law enforcement in a tribal nation. Describe for me, what's that like? Is it what non-tribal law enforcement agencies, is it typical, what one might envision, or are there some differences? Honestly, it's the hidden gem of law enforcement. I would not want to be anywhere else. Why is that? Because it's like one big family. You don't all get along, but you're all on the same mission for the same team. So Chief, let's also begin by talking about your agency, number of officers, what size area do you serve, and and what are some of the public safety issues that you face, your officers face? Sure. 
we have 12 square miles that we cover. I have 13 sworn officers and we face challenges of alcohol and drugs and also assaults. Now you also have a casino, which a casino can bring with it also certain related crimes, correct? Absolutely. We have a lot of theft related cases there, fraud. We're also able to utilize the casino to host a lot of training to help combat those things. It's one of those things that we see a lot of variety with outside people coming to the casino, but we also have the consistency in a small area where we have an opportunity to get to know people within our community, and we can make a noticeable impact that way. We have almost 1,500 tribal members, and we have an additional 1,000 or so descendants and descendants are those that don't meet the criteria to become enrolled members, but they're also people that live within our jurisdiction. I was going to say, so that's about 2,500 that are living within your jurisdiction then, it sounds like. And I'm sure that your population size bounces up when you start to look at the casino. Absolutely. The interesting thing about Tama, Iowa, is that Tama was actually a Meskwaki leader. And when, of course, Tama County, where we're at, and the city of Tama, which is adjacent to us, were both named after him. And he was known as a friend to the early white settlers. And the meaning of the word Tama is actually a powerful thunder that shakes the ground like an earthquake. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. An elder shared that with me. An elder shared that with that story with you. That's phenomenal. Absolutely. That's great. I don't think I'll ever forget the name yep. of, your, of your area. <laughs> and Tama was actually part of the Thunder Clan, of course. So tell me, 13 officers, they must be close? Absolutely. We have a really good group of people. Now, everything that you mentioned about dealing with issues or public safety issues that stem from alcohol or drugs or theft, et cetera, when you have a business that can sometimes attract those who wish to do harm, so to say, you have to be prepared for everything. And you have 13 officers. So de-escalation has been one of your key things here. And you're actually keeping statistics on it. Talk to me just about de-escalation, why it's so important in your specific situation. Because, you know, some may be very surprised to find out that you can't call for backup from outside agencies. Just like any agency, there's a lot of stress Nobody wants to use force if they don't have to use force. And it's something that it's a reality for every law enforcement agency. So I wanted to be able to reward officers for de-escalating situations. Another key thing was to be able to have video to share with other officers on how they did it. So what we consider to be de-escalation for our department is in-person occurrences of cursing at officers, aggressive language, threat or fighting cues displays of any weapon or item, or self-harm or harming of others. So what happens is the officers send out an email that's real short and sweet. It says the fact that it's a de-escalation, they say DE, they list the case number, they put cursing or whatever the specific thing was that the person did. They put the month that it occurred because I printed off and put it in a binder. And they put the subject's name down that was aggressive or did whatever they did. And what it does is it actually acts as a notification to the other officers that this person was being aggressive. And to, of course, be aware of that for any future encounters with that person. We also use those statistics as a way of congratulating the officers. It's instant gratification for them when they send them out because it goes out to every single person in our department. What I am so intrigued by this is that it's positive reinforcement, 
right? I mean, it goes back to fundamental way of teaching, a fundamental way of reinforcing certain behaviors, actions, practices, etc. So the de-escalation and the process of actually rewarding them, I mean, you give them an award, correct? Absolutely. We factor in our Officer of the Year award that was put in place last year, the de-escalations. So we also factor in work ethic, of course, and the handling of critical use of force situations. So in no way are we discrediting any use of force that is necessary as part of our careers, but we're rewarding situations that wouldn't have otherwise been known and having some sort of tangible number to be able to report that the officers did well. To give you some numbers here, we have had a reduction in our uses of force. I can't say the past year, and I can't direct say it was or wasn't because of our de-escalation statistic gathering. But in 2020, we had one use of force for every 6.93 arrests. And in 2021 to this point, we have had one use of force for every 8.39 arrests. In 2020, we had 25 uses of force which our standard for use of force could be somebody putting hands on somebody, somebody pointing a taser, or any sort of those things. So we had 41 de-escalations in 2020, and we had only 33 to this point this year and had 38 uses of force last year. So I guess 25 uses of force last year, 38 this year, more uses of force, but and actually less de-escalations this year, but less overall uses of force per arrest. So something's working. (laughs) Absolutely. So we've done a lot in gathering statistics to understand when we're busy, when we're not busy, as far as having officers available for those particular calls so that our officers are safe, especially, you know, considering the fact that our backup isn't as frequent from outside agencies. Let's talk about that for just a second, because your backup isn't as frequent. It's really important, right? That A, you're able to de-escalate situations before they get bad, which is what everybody wants to do, but you have a really sort of unique motivator there. Tell me about your safety alerts, your officer safety alerts. When someone is involved in a situation that's escalating, you immediately notify the other officers because you only have each other to back each other up, correct? Correct. That's what our de-escalation emails do is they let the other officers know that someone was acting in that way. So A lot of times you would only know if somebody committed an offense where they were arrested, whereas we have occurrences that don't result in any arrest or might not have any report associated with it. But it's also a way for us to be able to look and see the great behavior that the officers took to get to that conclusion and for us to use as training videos in our annual meetings or those sorts of things. I don't know... Of many police departments, I could call up and say, how many de-escalations did you have last year? None other than us. And when you explain it and the positives behind it, it kind of seems like, well, what are we waiting for? Why haven't we been doing this? Is it difficult to track? I I understand, you know, 13 police officers, 12 square miles, what, 6,000 calls a year, something like that. I mean, that's still a lot of calls. Was it a challenge at first to keep track of this? Honestly, it's not. The officers send it out and I print it out, put it in a folder. And then monthly, I send out the statistics to reinforce to the officers. They can see where they're at in comparison to the other officers. And most police officers I know are pretty competitive. So when they see that they're behind in other officers and de-escalation, they want to catch up. Have you ever had a situation where someone tried to de-escalate something, an officer tried to de-escalate a situation that really shouldn't have been? 
basically it was impossible to de-escalate, so to say. No, no. I know that's a big fear of officers that, hey, they're going to push de-escalation so hard that we can't use force. And that is the farthest thing from the truth for our department anyway. I can't speak for all agencies if they did this, but I want to capture data that other people don't see. So no bad occurrences, nothing where somebody got hurt, one of your officers got hurt because they didn't take necessary force that they needed to in order to keep themselves or someone else safe. So I'll um, give you an example. Okay. Person points knife or usually in that situation, we would be using force because we would be pointing a firearm back at that individual. But if there's some sort of self-harm or aggressive language, anything like that, and the officer handles it and it doesn't result in any use of force, then it's a de-escalation. If at the end of that call there is a use of force, there is no credit for the de-escalation earlier in that particular call. Let's say it, it drags out and it ends up in a use of force. So Chief, can you give us a little more insight into the de-escalation? I mean, we understand you're collecting the data on it, but there's other efforts that you've made also on this topic. Absolutely. To make the de-escalation more helpful, what we've done is we've actually sent officers to training. And the more training we can do, the better. We have two level three crisis negotiators, one level one crisis negotiators, and two de-escalation instructors. And we plan on sending additional officers to de-escalation school. And then do you also do peer reviews? They can even review you, right? Absolutely. And they have. And I've taken that information and applied it the best I can. The way we do that, I actually got this idea from Simon Sinek. It's still, it's a one of a kind thing that I've done that I've actually shared this with additional agencies that have heard about it, but we look at things differently. So opposite of our reviews that are by our supervisors, we have a peer review. So every six months, we're in a constant state of improvement in our department. So every officer has the ability to review every single employee on the department. What we look at is not just who do I want to fill in a leadership position, for example, but who do officers want to follow? Another thing we look at is different areas of trust. And do we trust them with our lives? Yes, most often we do in law enforcement trust people with our lives because that's what we train to do. But what we don't train to do is to look at confidentiality. Do we trust this person with information? Would we trust this person alone with our significant other? Those sorts of things. So as chair of the Small and Rural Law Enforcement Executives Association, is this something that you've brought to the table and discussed with others? And has there been any feedback, if so? I mean, are others expressing any interest and in possibly following suit? We've actually haven't had that discussion. So you haven't had that discussion. Why not? I've talked about it, like brought it up, but we haven't gone into great detail with our board about my process within our department. I definitely think that it's one of those things that I've made comments to others about, but nobody's following suit, and I can't tell you why. Do you think what you touched on earlier in terms of the fear that this translates to you can't use force, and that scares some, that that may be why others aren't necessarily following suit? I don't really see a downside to it because it's either a use of force or it's a de-escalation. I mean, a use of force is also can be a positive thing because it means that a person is you know, being aggressive to the point where we had to use force against them. Well, you know, in this day and age, with everyone looking for innovative ways to improve community 
and law enforcement relations, to instill trust in police, and to deal with the concerns that have been out there that have been held by members of the community. This seems like something that would be welcomed, I'm assuming. I mean, what has been the feedback? So that I don't assume, what has been the feedback from your community? Our community hasn't given us any feedback whatsoever. It's really our process, and I've provided the statistics, but it has not been acknowledged within the tribe by any one individual. What is the relationship between your community and the police department? It's great. The community involves us in about everything that they do. We just had a shop with a cop, for example, the last couple of days. They made a traditional meal for all the kids. What happened beyond shopping, we brought the kids to Walmart, but then we came back. We actually wrapped gifts together and community members made fry bread and Indian corn, other things. And we're involved. So you're relatively a young police agency, right? I mean, you were founded in 2006? Correct. We just turned 15 years old. Have you always enjoyed that relationship with the community? That Um, sort of positive relationship? Because I can imagine people listening to what you just described and saying, okay, I want that. How do we get that? Sure. It hasn't always been that way. It was earned. I think in a lot of communities, people tend to trust you until you give them a reason not to trust you. But in our community... Trust has to be earned. And once you earn it, it's kind of like in some communities where countries where people are really hard to get to know. But once you know them, it's the best friendship or the best relationship you could ever have because they fully trust you. In terms of differences, can you shed some light and not necessarily differences, differences and similarities. But if you had to paint a picture to help us envision what it is to be a tribal nation police department, how would you answer that? So we don't have any private companies within our jurisdiction. Everything is through the tribe. So we have our own natural resources department, human resources, gaming commission, casino, food sovereignty, higher education, housing, apprenticeship, IT, senior services, museum, workforce development, child support, all these different entities, the clinic, and so on through the tribe. And they're all tribal employees or casino employees. So we're all in it together. It's not like you go to one household and they speak one language or they're so much different from each other where you go from house to house here, they all have the same beliefs as one another. That's certainly unique. It doesn't mean they all get along, but it means (laughs) that everyone comes together and is one community and one family. So talking about some of the differences, let's explain a little bit about the backup topic I mentioned earlier. You used to have MOUs with other departments, and now you don't. Could you kind of explain that situation? So we're all state-certified officers in our department, like how a lot of tribal agencies are. Prior to 2018, everything on the Meskwaki settlement had the ability to be charged through state court. In December of 2018, that changed with the repeal of the 1948 Act through Congress. And what that did was make us more like the rest of Indian country, which is federal territory. So that really changed everything for us. It gives the tribe more sovereignty. It was overall positive thing, but it impacted the relationship because it made our surrounding agencies unable to arrest tribal members on tribal land for state offenses. And you are the only tribal nation in Iowa? Correct. So within our tribal code, we have the ability to give arrest powers to other agencies. So Toledo or Tama, Tama County, where we're at, through an agreement, we give them arrest powers tribally. Not that they would fill out any tickets or anything like that, but they would have the ability to be a sworn officer on the Meskwaki settlement. 
And now without that, that's giving you sovereignty, but at the same time, that's taken away some backup for you, which can be challenging, I'm sure, in, in those rare instances where you might need help. Right. So using our statistics, what we've done is we have two officer minimum from noon to midnight. So that has definitely helped have the appropriate number of people there when we need them. And if there were to be a major critical incident, like a school shooting, God forbid, in that case, would you be able to ask for assistance? Yeah. And we actually just did assist Tama County not too long ago. Within the past month, there was an officer involved shooting about 30 minutes from our jurisdiction. And we sent one of our crisis negotiators there, as well as an additional officer for support, absent that agreement. We have an obligation under Iowa Code and Tribal Code to assist. Can you give us some insight into the Small and Rural Law Enforcement Executives Association that you're chair of? How does that play into your role there? What are its objectives? Is it idea sharing? So we have two other tribal police chiefs on the Small and Rural Law Enforcement Executives Association. The association started in January, but prior to that, Mike Brown, who had served for 53 years in Virginia, in Bedford County, he and John Thompson, who was a chief of police as well in Maryland, they got together with some other retired officers and knew that small and rural was not represented nationally. So they created this association that started in January that represents over 90% of the small and rural agencies across the United States. It's hard to believe when we say small and rural, we're talking about 75,000 population or less for cities. Yeah, that doesn't sound small and rural right. to me. Right. But for our classifications, if you were to take those agencies and line up all those officers with the New Yorks, the Los Angeles, the Houston, all of that nine out of 10 officers would be a small and rural officer. When you talk about even smaller yet, over 50% of officers or departments, I should say, across the United States have 10 or less officers. How's recruitment for you? Recruitment is not good right now. So you're facing the same challenges that law enforcement agencies across the country are facing right now. Absolutely. We're fortunate that we're good at retaining officers. We're only looking to fill one position, but it is hard to recruit in any profession right now. And let me ask uh, what feels like a silly question. Can you only recruit from the tribe? That is a common myth, and we do not have any tribal officers on our department. Huh. We do have two tribal members on our department. We have an office manager and a correctional officer who are both part of the tribe, but that is one of the most frequent myths that we see. So tribes have tribal preference. If you and I both applied for the same position, had the same qualifications, and you were native and I was non-native, you would get the job. I'm actually so happy that we debunked that myth. And I don't necessarily know if it's a myth or just a really bad assumption. So let's say someone who's thinking about getting into law enforcement, what would you say would be the advantages to joining a tribal police department? So tribes with their sovereignty are the most safe from liability of any law enforcement agency. So with tribal sovereignty, with lawsuits and things like that, we're more protected than other places the special law enforcement commissions that we're able to have to enforce federal law. With that comes federal protections. So let's go back to the commissions. Who makes up those commissions? So special law enforcement commissions are basically like a driver's license. You have to renew them. You have to do updated training and background checks. 
They're issued by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. What we have to do is go through Indian country jurisdiction training through the United States Attorney's Office to be able to be issued those commissions. They're per officer, not by department. Per officer. So is that essentially what gives you your law enforcement authority? That's specific to federal authority. So let me further understand the commission. So I'm a law enforcement officer for a tribal police department. Am I automatically commissioned then? So it is not a requirement to have a special law enforcement commission as a tribal officer. It is often needed because of our jurisdictional surroundings, because of non-natives being within our jurisdictions due to our casinos and things like that. So in tribal communities where there aren't any casinos, there's probably not a need for a special law enforcement commission because they don't have a lot of outside individuals. So that special law enforcement commission enables your tribal officers to arrest people who are non-tribal members? An example, you as a non-native steal something from our gas station. You cannot be charged in state court. You can only be charged in federal court because you committed a crime against a tribal organization. Same thing, you as a non-native trespass at the Meskwaki Casino. It's a victimless crime, so you're going to be charged in state court. But you cause damage to our slot machine, you're going to be charged in federal court because that's the tribe's property. And in order for your officer to arrest me, do they have to have their special law enforcement commission? Yes. Otherwise, it's referred to the U.S. Attorney's Office and the U.S. Attorney files that. Okay, I understand. Is there anything that you want to make sure that people who are listening to us right now walk away with a better understanding of? So I have great respect for tribes and their culture. They're people of oral tradition. So you're not going to hear or read a lot about what they do and why they do it. But for example, we just had a community member die. Things are going to be quiet around the Meskwaki settlement because people grieve together. That person didn't even live in the state of Iowa when they, when they passed away. So there's basically an informal mourning period. On the day of the funeral, it starts the four days of mourning. And over that time, we're not going to be playing loud music. We're not going to have parties, any events that aren't business. They're canceled. People aren't going to do things they really enjoy, parties, beadwork, anything like that. After those four days, what they do is they have an adoption ceremony. They choose someone from the community that most resembles that person, not to replace them, but to fill the void in the family's life. Oh, wow. So let's say, are you married? Yes. Okay. You're native and you pass away. That person that's adopted for you is going to be the mom to your kids. Wow. They might buy gifts, things like that. So it kind of goes back to way back in the day when a little girl lost her mom and you know turns to another woman in the community and says, will you be my mom? That type of thing. And well, yes, I will. That type of thing. And there's qualities about you that will actually go with the person that was adopted for you. So what's something you really like to eat? <laughs> pizza. <laughs> pizza. So the person that was adopted for you hated pizza before, but now guess what? They love pizza. They might love pizza now because your spirit is now with them. And just bringing it back, this is something the entire community participates in. So your police officers, your department? Business is business. For example, we have a youth hunt. We had our shop with a cop that I talked about before. That would have been canceled if the death occurred for those events. A lot of things get rescheduled. So for example, I was at the Meskwaki Settlement School. Like I often am, I have my own lunch account there. I like doing recess with the kids and that sort of thing. So they have a lot of events within the community where there's free food and that type of thing. Basically, everybody gets together. 
playing catch and having a good time. And pretty soon you start seeing people walk out and you hear that someone had passed away, you know, out of state or wherever it is. People don't complain about it. It's just the way of life. So in non-native culture, we revolve ourselves around events. It's not that way with them. We revolve ourselves around that individual. Sounds like something very special to be a part of and a truly deep meaning and sense of community and family. Absolutely. That's very special. I thank you so much for sharing that with us. Yeah, of course. One place that most people are familiar with is the city of Chicago. And Mm -hmm. believe it or not, Chicago is actually an Indian word. Mm -hmm. And it Mm -hmm. actually means stinky onion. (laughs) Who knew that? Or wild onion. So what happened was is that when white settlers first arrived to what became Chicago, there was a lot of onion fields around. And they asked the natives what they called that. So they told them. And it stuck. (laughs) Okay, so I don't think our listeners have ever had a story like this. So I know this one's going to stick with them. They now know the secret behind the name Chicago. (laughs) It's a stinky onion, everyone. (laughs) I think most people would agree. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I love Chicago. It's my favorite I love city. Chicago too, but got to have a little fun. That's the thing about Indian humor too. You have to have fun. That's right. That's right. So listen, if anyone wanted to get in touch with you to, to talk more about your data collection on de-escalation or anything about tribal policing or about the small and rural law enforcement executives association, how can they get in touch with you? My email is j. Molitor, M-O-L-I-T-O-R dot M-N-P-D, like Mary, Nora, Paul, David, at Meskwaki, M-E-S-K-W-A-K-I hyphen N-S-N, like Nora, Sam, Nora, dot gov. And the Small Rural Law Enforcement Executives Association is not just for executives. It's also open to all sworn reserves, retired officers, correctional staff, civilian employees, and criminal justice students. We're actually hosting the first ever in-person conference at the Meskwaki Casino, April 27th to the 29th. We'll have up to 250 people there. We'll also have vendors. We're really excited, and I would love for you to come and to be able to meet you and to be able to answer any other questions you have about Meskwaki culture, tribal policing, and jurisdiction, which... uh, is easier understood under more in-depth conversation. Up close and personal. It must be something to see. I cannot thank you enough for sharing this time with us and taking us into your law enforcement agency and into your community and sharing with us. We wish you the best of luck. I'm going to keep an eye on your efforts and your innovations on de-escalation and see if that catches on. I have a feeling it just might. Thank you so much. And thank you everyone for joining us here on The Beat. The Beat is brought to you by the United States Department of Justice's COPS Office. The COPS Office helps to keep our nation's communities safe by giving grants to law enforcement agencies, developing community policing publications, developing partnerships, and solving problems. If you have comments or suggestions, please email our response center at askcopsrc at usdoj.gov or check out our social media on Facebook, www.facebook.com backslash DOJ Cops. On YouTube, www.youtube.com backslash C backslash DOJ Cops Office, or on Twitter, at Cops Office. Our website is www.cops.com. 
www.usdoj.gov. The opinions contained herein are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the U.S. Department of Justice. References to specific agencies, companies, products, or services should not be considered an endorsement by the authors or the U.S. Department of Justice. Rather, the references are illustrations to supplement discussion of the issues.